Many Koreans believe that this is their country's century. They're already proving it as an economic powerhouse, manufacturing affordable and futuristic technology. They're also getting famous for producing a heavy layer of pop culture designed for export. It's the entire package that Korea is using to present itself to the world in an attempt to create a national PR campaign. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Yuni Hong unveils how South Korean cool is being marketed to the world. But as author Pico Iyer found, when you step behind the looking glass into North Korea, it's an entirely different scene. By North Korean standards, it's opened up a lot. By the standards of anywhere else in the world, it still belongs to another planet, which of course is part of what makes it so fascinating to visit. Find out how much these two rival countries have changed over a quarter century as we explore both sides of the Korean peninsula today on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. The number of foreign visitors to South Korea is at record high levels. Tourism figures show more than 14 million international arrivals in 2014. Meanwhile, across the 38th parallel, communist North Korea attracts only a few thousand tourists a year. Pico Iyer decided to see what might have changed in a nearly quarter century since his last visit to North Korea. He joins us in the hour ahead to share what he was able to decipher about one of the most secretive countries on Earth. On the other hand, South Korea has turned into one of the top economies in the world in barely a generation. And now, Korean business and political leaders are taking it one step further by investing huge amounts of money in packaging everything from boy bands to soap operas to the world's leading smartphones. Korean leaders hope to spread the Korean brand all around the world through its pop culture. And with more than 2 billion views of the YouTube sensation Gangnam Style, it looks like they're onto something. When Yuni Hong was 12 years old, her parents decided to move the family from Chicago back to Korea, where they were born. They moved into the same wealthy Gangnam neighborhood in Seoul that the song satirizes. Yuni eventually returned to the United States, but with a new respect and understanding for today's South Korea. Yuni explains what's behind Korea's global marketing and image campaign in her gutsy book. It's called The Birth of Korean Cool, How One Nation is Conquering the World Through Pop Culture. Yuni, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Rick. This is quite a phenomenon, but uh, that's also quite a statement, how one nation is conquering the world through pop culture. How so? What do you mean by that? Well, this is not a small feat. First of all, no non-English speaking country has ever attempted to compete with the United States in the pop culture wars. Korea is a country of something like 60, 70 million people, and it speaks a language that is not spoken outside its borders. So not only are they the first country to attempt this, they're also the first country to demonstrate that cool can actually be manufactured with effort and money, which is sort Mm -hmm. of the opposite of what we normally think of as being cool as effortless. That's right. It's a calculated and invested cool. Is it mostly done in English language, would you say? This is one of the interesting things about it is that they've kept very faithful to keeping 
well, the dramas are certainly all in Korean. The pop songs are in Korean, but with English refrains and choruses, you know, a lot of the yeah, baby mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. And that's always in English. That's kind of just an homage to the genre. <laughs> but um, yeah, what's interesting is that they have kept it in, in Korean and yeah. there has not been any demand really for that to change, except I would say in the world of cinema, right. which requires a whole other level of financing. So in order to get backing, uh, what you're seeing a lot more is Korean-produced movies, but with American stars in English, like Ah. Snowpiercer, which was a very highly regarded dystopic movie that came out last year by the director Bong Joon-ho. It had Chris Evans in it and Ed Harris. And, you know, that's a great example of what we're going to see a lot more of in the future. It's a Korean production. One of the lead actors is Korean, but most of the cast is Mm English-speaking. It was financed in part by the Korean Ministry of Culture and the Korean Venture Investment Corporation, which is actually also government financed. It's a fund of funds to the tune of $1.5 billion, with a B, $1.5 billion that is devoted entirely to financing pop culture products. Now, I want to talk about the government push for this in a moment, but first I want to sort of lay the groundwork. Exactly what is Korean cool? What are some good examples of that? Right. Korean cool encompasses food, film, fashion, television dramas, K-pop songs, and even things like uh, breakdancing. It's the entire package that Korea is using to present itself to the world in an attempt to create a national PR campaign. Hmm. And the end goal is not necessarily to have all these viral videos of K-pop songs, although that's obviously great. The Mm -hmm. end goal is to create an image of Korean cool, which, like American cool of the 20th century, Korean cool of the 21st century is meant to ensure that people buy Korean products long past the time that they've forgotten about Psy, long past the popularity of Korean pop music or Korean dramas. It's about a national branding campaign. So it really is branding. I was going to say it's it's about building a brand, and you've got 70 million people that are going to be producing stuff, and just from a buy a car, buy a mobile phone, buy buy whatever, if it's Korean, it's cool, and that's worth a lot of money outside of silly pop culture. So this is sort of a marketing campaign. When we think of the impact of this movement of Korean cool and so on, is the impact in the Pacific Rim greater than we realize because we, we're farther away here in the United States? Absolutely. Korea is basically the Marlboro Man of Asia. And anyone who's visited, particularly Southeast Asia, Thailand, Taiwan, Hong Kong, or even mainland China or Japan, you know, you see posters on the walls of major Japanese products that are, and they're being advertised by Korean stars. And I'll give you a specific example. In Thailand, there was a TV ad that ran last year for Lipton iced tea. And the premise of the ad is that a Thai guy is trying to impress a girl, you know, without success. Then he drinks the iced tea and Lipton iced tea makes him cool suddenly. And how does he show this? He suddenly can speak Korean. Wow. This is completely out of context. (laughs) It has nothing to do with the setting. It has nothing to do with Lipton iced tea. It's just sort of like... I don't know, the American equivalent would be a guy who right. can suddenly speak for French. Or I don't even know. And, and, and it works. Yuni Hong split her youth between Chicago and Seoul. And she's our guide to the powerhouse that South Korea has become right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her book, The Birth of Korean Cool, is published by Picador. And Yuni updates her speaking schedule at unihong.com. 
That's spelled E-U-N-Y-H-O-N-G dot com. A lot of us, the only thing we know about Korean cool is the Gangnam style uh, video. When you look at that video, is that a sort of a typical representation of what all this cool is, is about, the music and the, and the fashion? Does that sort of sum it up in a kind of an honest way or a straight way? Well, the Gangnam video was the exception that proves the rule. Psy is not the ambassador that Korea wanted hmm. to put the face of Korean pop music on the map. Ah. Um, he was very much an outlier in many ways. One, he did not rise through the K-pop factory system. He's a little bit too old. He's the wrong body type. He has never had cosmetic surgery. And he's a singer-songwriter, which, believe it or not, is extremely rare in the world of K-pop. Usually the bands are prefabricated and the songs are written by somebody else and Psy did everything himself. And so, I mean, he was very famous in Korea, but sort of as this kind of embarrassment, you know, not taken seriously at all. And when I saw his video... um, People obviously kept sending this to me because I, I grew up in Gangnam, actually, which is the, the area of Seoul that Gangnam style is about. And I was a little bit embarrassed by it. I think a lot of Koreans were. It's kind of the Beverly Hills of Seoul, isn't it? A, a district called Gangnam. Not only is it the Beverly Hills of Seoul, but there is a shopping street called Rodeo Drive. Oh, okay. There you go. So, yes. I, this is interesting because I was always, when I was a kid, the monkeys were created by by people that wanted to sell a TV show, and I just thought they are the opposite of the Beatles, who are really creative. Is K-pop that kind of a commodified culture, and there's actually a a department in the government that breeds and designs and encourages the cosmetic surgery and chooses the body types of what's going to be the pop brand of Korea? (laughs) It's not quite the science fiction dystopia as the government's test-tubing all these pop stars, although it seems like that at times. I mean, the government plays an extremely important role in creating an ecosystem so that all of this can exist. And they finance pop culture when necessary. So, for example, when K-pop music suffered economic losses because of piracy a couple of years ago, this is a worldwide phenomenon. But as far as I know, Korea is the only country in the world to respond to piracy by financing, by bailing out Hmm. the record industry in the same way that the United States government bailed out Goldman Sachs during the financial crisis. Korea is the only country that would actually have a government bailout of pop culture. So in that sense, yes, the government's role is instrumental. However, Hmm. the machine itself exists, obviously, because of private industry. But in Korea, you can never talk about private industry separate from government. They always work together. I like to say it's the only, Korea is the only capitalist liberal democracy in the world that can, when necessary, operate as a command economy. A lot of Pacific Rim societies, it seems to me, have a government that can come in and and stoke the economy or stoke their mission with uh, something that's not quite uh, kosher as far as we would think in a free democratic society. Uh, But they still maintain a, a, a reasonable democracy. Oh, absolutely. And the government does not require controlling interest or shares in the companies in exchange for this helping hand. Uni, uh, it's curious to me, is, would you characterize um, Korean cool, is it, is it all low culture or is it high culture as well as low culture? Well, that's a really excellent question because Korea does have separate uh, financing, government financing for things like the ballet, opera, and so forth. This is a completely different budget. These are not supported for export. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, this is a country that, unlike the United States, their export model is completely different from its in- internal model. It's just crass marketing. Yes, it's Coca-Cola. It's right. um, yeah, it, it, yeah, right. exactly. You need the striking thing to me when I think of Korea is the remarkable change in the economics. I mean, when I was a kid, Korea was a desperately poor country living with a dictatorship, and now it's one of the most powerful economies in the world. Give us a review of the the change that's happened in your lifetime economically and and politically in Korea. Right. I mean, as you say, uh, after the Korean War, which which was from 1950 to 1953, South Korea was poorer than most of South Saharan Africa, now it is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and Seoul looks like the capital city in the Hunger Games movie. It's completely futuristic. When I moved to Korea, I was actually born in the U.S. My family did kind of a reverse immigration. We moved to Korea in 1985. So at that time, Korea was right in the middle of becoming a first world country. So I was only in Korea for about six years total, from age 12 to 18, And yet during this brief time, I really saw actual leapfrogging from third world to first world. And it it was incredibly disruptive and violent, literally and spiritually and emotionally, and miraculous. There's more with Yuni Hong and the miraculous transformation of South Korea into a global trendsetter and economic powerhouse. That's in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also look into what a careful tour of North Korea can show us through the perceptive eyes of Pico Iyer in just a bit. We're at 877-333-7425. Or share your tales of Korea in our online message board. You'll find that in the radio pages at ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Yuni Hong's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as she shows us more of the modern marvel of South Korea and the birth of Korean cool. Before the break, we were comparing how far South Korea has emerged economically from the third world in barely a generation. Yuni, what's the magic formula? How much does the government steer the economy, and how much might be a result of a Korean personality and mindset? I've heard that there's something they call Han that plays a role in, in, in the way many Koreans look at life. Well, it's both of those things. Um, you know, part of it is that the government had some extremely brilliant early planning, 
where they realized they could not count on the free market for the country that was just destroyed by war cannot depend on capitalism to rebuild itself. So the Korean government secured foreign loans. And that's how Samsung and Hyundai and what is now called LG became what they are today. You also mentioned Han, and that is the second and also equally important component. Now, Han, which is romanized as H-A-N, is a culturally specific form of rage, which by definition you can only have if you're Korean. Hmm. You can see evidence of Han in a lot of Korean vigilante movies, which are, have become very popular in the West. Chapak Chanuk has the Vengeance trilogy, Old Boy is the most famous of those that was remade into an American version by Spike Lee last year. So this is a kind of pent-up anger and pain that is uniquely Korean because it's been invaded so many times? Is that the idea? Right. Supposedly, Korea has been invaded 400 times in the last 5,000 years, Hmm. and it has never once unilaterally invaded any other country. And Han is based on the belief that you absorb the agony of millennia. It's like the opposite of karma, you know, in Hindu wow. belief. And that powers Korea. That powers Korea. It motivates them. I mean, it's normal to want to be richer. It's not normal to be number one at all costs. This whole Psy and Gangnam style thing is, is a kind of revenge for being invaded 400 times. Exactly. It's a revenge against the world. And also very specifically, it's a revenge against uh, the Japanese who colonized Korea on and off for a number of... Well, they inv- they've been enemies for about 700 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and Korea was a colony of Japan from 1905 to the end of the Second World War. This was a huge chip on the Koreans' shoulder when I was growing up. It still is. Wow. And you see evidence of how important Japan was or how important defeating Japan was in a lot of Korean economic success. Well, that's very interesting in this post-World War II world of ours that some of the uh, the best sort of offenses are economic and pop culture and so on. We can see that with Japan and Germany, and we can see this also with Korea. You can see that with the rise and fall of different cultures as brands in the West, if French or right. German or American is cool, the British invasion. But to think that Korea is sort of the trendsetter and the envy from a cultural point of view of Southeast Asia, it's fascinating. Now, visually... What is the visual cliché of Korean cool? What would we look at if you were in Thailand or Vietnam or Philippines and somebody was trying to be Korean cool, how would they look? Aesthetically, for men, the look would just be extreme high fashion of the kind that in the West you haven't seen since David Bowie or, you know, or Elton John. You know, mm. very loud colors, sort of tight tailored cuts, like sort of more of an Italian cut rather than Italian, a baggy. Like English. Italian David Bowie. Yes, Italian David Bowie, perfect. Like, yeah, exactly. If if David Bowie were a Gucci model or mm. something like that. That's the image. I, I was just wondering about that because from a distance, it's hard to know. And we don't get the brunt of the Korean cool invasion in the United States, I guess, yet. But are there ways that Korean cool is affecting me in my American world that I might not even be aware of? Yes. I mean, I would say even Korea would admit that its penetration in the U.S. has been not nearly as strong as anywhere else, and that's quite predictable. America has been pretty self-sufficient in terms of they're making their own pop culture. In fact, it's hard even, with the exception of Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. it's extremely hard to even get a British TV show or a British movie mm. to be super popular here. But Korean cool is still happening here exactly in ways that you don't realize. I mean, Samsung is still by far, by far, by far, is the top-selling mm-hmm. smartphone. 
and their microchips are still number one in the world. And in fact, Apple, which has 50 simultaneous mutual lawsuits against Samsung, Apple uses Samsung microchips. Is Korea doing anything devious to work their way, to worm their way into my world through their technological prowess? That's the beauty of marketing is that, you know, you watch Mad Men, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you've marketed something successfully, mm -hmm. you've made the consumer think it was their idea to buy it. Right. And that's exactly what's happening. What Korea is working in, as I said, the end game is not to make Korean pop songs be on the Billboard 100. I mean, that would it's be to, great. It's but to it's, sell Samsung products. It's a sell Samsung product. It's All completely right. unnecessary what, which, which form it takes. Uh, and not just Samsung products, but diplomacy mm -hmm. on a bigger level. Uh, this is more outside the U.S., but, you know, the Korea is winning the hearts and minds of countries where the young people who are listening to K-pop now will grow up. They'll go to the highest levels of government. And if they, get, if they order a ship contract from Hyundai Shipbuilding, that's a billion-dollar contract for one ship. That pays for all right. the videos. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Yuni Hong. Her book is called The Birth of Korean Cool. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sue Ann is calling in from Seattle. Sue Ann. Hi, Rick. I served in the Peace Corps in Korea uh, a bit before Yuni Hong was there in 1970 and 71 and went back in 2011. That was the first time and only time I've been back. So the contrast was quite amazing. It's and a different universe. Yes. <laughs> when I was there in 70 and 71, Korea was, you know, I was in the Peace Corps, and Peace Corps goes to developing countries, and it was definitely a developing country. As you mentioned, struggling to overcome the Japanese occupation, the effects of that and the Korean War. People were very hardworking, but it was a, a poor economy, and most people didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, we used outhouses, and there was a lot of charm about it. There was, I mean, not the outhouses necessarily, but mm -hmm. thatched roof houses and uh, very rural. I lived actually in Jeju-do, although I visited Seoul numerous times. And when I went back, I was just amazed with the, the changes, the economy, the prosperity. I had taught middle school girls. I taught English to them. And the ones that I saw when I went back and got together with, there were like seven of them. They're all now very middle-class career women. They could travel, which wasn't common when I was there. It was very hard to travel. Sue Ann, so, even though Koreans are so cool and, and, and influential now all over the Pacific Rim, did you find the welcome was stuck up and cool, or were the people still warm and friendly? Uh, the traditional values just really, you know, with all the changes, it surprised me how much the traditional values of hospitality and generosity and, and the importance of relationships really carried through. So and that persists. Uh, you that need, persists, Do you find yeah. that also, Uni, that the, uh, the, the warm and beautiful parts of the culture are resilient? Yes, well, it's funny that you mentioned that, Sue Ann and, and Rick both. That's a matter of exactly what the people are in Korea are debating right now is at what price has this success come? And of course, a lot of people say there has been an erosion of etiquette. And you do see small signs of that. Starbucks was a minor revolution in this. I talk about this in my book, but Traditionally, it is extremely rude to carry around anything that you're eating or drinking. Hmm. Um, even if you're jogging, you're not really supposed to carry around water. Maybe if you're a small child, you can get away with eating ice cream on the street, but not if your parents are around. Hmm. And Starbucks completely changed that with the introduction of the disposable cup. 
And this created some problems for me when I had to go to a very important, I was interviewing the people from the Ministry of Education, and I brought my Starbucks cup and they were all staring at it. And I realized that I had done a terrible, terrible thing. Oh, you're so American. <laughs> I did notice a few people when I was there in 2011 carrying food on the street, which, yeah, was very different than I would have seen before. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of my friends and students and the family I lived with that I saw again when I was there, they said that there was a loss of some of the charm of the old Korea. But that's the question, at what expense? But the, now their life is so comfortable and prosperous and convenient and uh, comfortable for people, this large middle class of people. And that's a beautiful thing. They also have, um, over a period of about 12 years, of late 70s and in, through the 80s, they implemented national health insurance. And so they now have a longer life expectancy than the U.S., at a lower cost per person. So it's not just a, a wealth in you know financial and material things, but it's impacted their whole uh, So the whole fabric their whole of their life. culture and their well-being is, is uh, enjoying some benefits from the success of the country's economy. Yes. Right, and crucially, there are even physiological differences as a result of the increase of wealth. I studied World Health Organization statistics on height, and Korean height has increased something like four inches on average in the last 30, 40 years. And that's just because nutrition was so terrible after the war. And now, I mean, you can kind of see this in K-pop videos and dramas, mm. but people who go to Korea for the first time, one of the things that really stands out is that there are a lot of people, well, young people, rather, there are a lot of young people mm. who are freakishly tall. I have a Korean-American friend who's a guy, and he, he said the biggest shock that he had when he went to Korea for the first time is he's six feet tall, and when he, he assumed that when he went to Korea, he'd be towering over anybody. Mm. Absolutely not. There are plenty of people who are taller than he was, and that's something that is extremely recent, sort of this... That is. Yuni, that wouldn't have been true when I lived there. Yuni, yeah. would you say that the people in South Korea are, are definitively taller than the people in North Korea today? Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen figures on North Korean height. On that, those are anything coming out of North Korea is unreliable anyway. Mm -hmm. But you know, just anecdotally and based on the mm -hmm. you know refugees and so forth, it's clear that yeah. uh, malnutrition has definitely taken its toll, and right. they are almost not even, frankly, the same race anymore. Sue Ann, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Nice to okay. talk to you. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Yuni Hong. Her book is The Birth of Korean Cool. Yuni. How can I experience Korean cool best, most vividly, when I visit South Korea? Well, uh, that's a funny question because the things that people used to visit as tourists, you know, the palaces and so forth, Korea is no longer really interested in promoting any of that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much more lucrative for them to cater to, well, especially to Asian tourists who want basically the K-pop tour. Mm -hmm. If you want to see Korean cool in this sort of oblique way, I would say, believe it or not, follow the trail of these Japanese organized tour groups by fanatics of Korean dramas. <laughs> there are a lot of package tours that Japanese, particularly middle-aged Japanese women like to go to, but now Asians everywhere have them, where you just basically follow the path of their favorite drama. This is where this was filmed. This is where that was filmed. This is the birthplace of this fictional character. I mean, I don't know how much you would personally enjoy it, as, you know, as a fan, but anthropologically, I think you would <laughs> love it. You know, that's something very interesting because uh, I just 
I rarely meet anybody from the United States that is going to Korea. And uh, you write in your book that Korea, Seoul, is one of the most visited cities on the planet. It's very popular as a travel destination for Chinese, Japanese, and Thai tourists. Yes, it is. I mean, I'm not entirely sure why. Some of that is, as as I said, star tours. Some of that Mm -hmm. is maybe these people are actually hoping to meet a Korean guy, Mm -hmm. because now Korean guys are considered extremely attractive in Asia. And, of course, a component of that is cosmetic tourism. Meaning what? Uh, Meaning that as of uh, two years ago, South Korea is now the world's plastic surgery capital. It surpassed Argentina in 2012. And some of this, of course, is driven by the popularity of Korean movie stars and pop singers, where they all have a particular look. And Asians everywhere seem to aspire to this, so they book these plastic surgery tours. Wow. So you said, like you said, Psy was kind of a mistake from a brand-building point of view because he doesn't have the right body type. Uh, So most of the body types would be, in America, you know, a lot of parents are upset about this Barbie doll standard that is being set for our young kids. And in Korea, they're setting this sort of cosmetic surgery standards. Right. It's important to note that the cosmetic trends in Korea are extremely different from the ones in the West. The most popular cosmetic procedures in the United States are breast enlargement and liposuction. And in Korea, the most popular procedure is eyelid uh, surgery. It's actually the, technically what they add an epicanthic fold so that the eyes look bigger. Is um, that to look less Asian and more Western? That's a matter of controversy. Obviously, a lot of people are saying this is you know body dysmorphia. This is... Um, a kind of racial reassignment surgery. I strongly disagree with that. Um, I mean, the traditional Korean beauty standard based on, you know, ancient poems and songs and so forth, it really is to have bigger eyes. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the surgery has spiked recently, it's not because they suddenly discovered Western beauty. I mean, they've had access to American films for, you know, 70 years. Mm -hmm. It's just, I mean, according to surgeons I talked to, the reason it's happening recently is simply that, the technology of cosmetic surgery has advanced such that it's faster mm-hmm. and, most importantly, really cheap. So it's accessible. Um, it's accessible. Yeah, it's accessible. It's an easy way to upgrade yourself. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Yuni Hong. Her book is The Birth of Korean Cool. Yuni, let's just finish off with, with one thought. You are an American Korean. When you look back at your home culture, Korea, apart from K-pop and cosmetic surgery, what do you think is the coolest thing? about Korean culture? Well, um, I think that what we're going to see as being the coolest thing from Korean culture is, oddly enough, something that won't sort of have an obvious made-in-Korea stamp on it, and that is that they're developing culture technology, and that's a term I never heard before I was doing research for this book. But culture technology is basically, if you think of what Industrial Light and Magic does or what Pixar does or what Spielberg did for Jurassic Park, that's all culture technology. And Korea is working on, they're basically the country's best scientists and funded by government taxpayer money. They're working on stuff like extremely realistic 3D holograms that you can use for live entertainment. And this might seem like a totally useless thing. But, um, well, the idea is that current hologram technology is 2D. So, you know, when P. Diddy appeared on the American Music Awards as a hologram, he only kind of looked real if you were looking fully frontal at him. If you look at the side, it's just like, a you know, a line of light. And if you look in the back, well, you can't because that's where the projection's coming from. 
So if you're a young person excited about the pop culture and the future is going to be dominated by little screens, and if you're thankful for that, you can also be thankful for Korea. Absolutely. Yuni Hong, author of The Birth of Korean Cool, thanks so much for a better appreciation of what's going on in, in a very exciting corner of this planet right now, South Korea. Thank you. It was great being on your show. You'll find links to Yuni Hong and her book, The Birth of Korean Cool, in this week's show details. That's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Whether your travels taken near or far, you can share them with us in the forum of a haiku poem. There's a link to send us yours in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here's a few poems our listeners have written that we thought you'd enjoy. Sometimes it only requires a few choice words to send your imagination traveling. Lynn Gurner from Wailuku, Hawaii, sends us this haiku of the scene she observed one afternoon in the Southern California desert. Tall clouds sign thermals. High sun reveals quarry's rest to red-shouldered hawk. Sean Bowles of Eugene, Oregon, shares a sailing haiku with us. Wind rising quickly, she scuds down rising roglers, land is far away. And Steve McClary of Las Cruces, New Mexico sends us this souvenir of summertime in Italy. Tuscany August. Sunflowers turn shy faces for a summer kiss. Up next, Pico Iyer went where few adventurous travelers dared to venture, into North Korea. We're at 877-333-RICK. Yasas, imo Dimitris apotisalo niki ketaxidevometo Rick Steves. Hi, I just said in my language, in Greek, I'm Dimitri from Thessaloniki, which is the north of Greece, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Yasas, imo Dimitris apotisalo niki ketaxidevometo Rick Steves. If you'd like to know which countries are left on this planet where you won't find the same corporate chains everywhere you look, Pico Iyer has one exotic destination to tell us about. It's a place, realistically, you probably won't want to visit. But it sure is interesting. Pico recently returned from North Korea, which he first visited solo 25 years ago. This time, he took a package tour to observe what's new about that defiantly isolationist regional troublemaker since Kim Jong-un assumed power. Pico, we're glad to have you back on Travel with Rick Steves. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Rick. Thank you. So you first visited North Korea back in the 1990s, and you wrote about it in your book, Falling Off the Map. What do you have to report? Is it changed, or is it essentially still the same isolated sort of hermit kingdom? It's taking baby steps towards the rest of the world. It's opening up a little. Uh, as many people may know, there are quite a few cars on the street now. There are taxis. People use cell phones. I saw two pizzerias, there's a 36-lane bowling alley. So by North Korean standards, it's opened up a lot. By the standards of anywhere else in the world, it still belongs to another planet, which, of mm. course, is part of what makes it so fascinating to visit. So, Pico, you've, you've been to a number of places where people kind of think, I didn't even know tourists could go there. And uh, apparently, what, 100 or 150 tourists a day go to North Korea. What are the practicalities? Uh, we'll talk later about what you find, but just how do you do it? 
It's actually not difficult at all. Uh, there are several agencies that run tours into North Korea, most of them based in Beijing or China, and I went through the largest of those, which takes maybe 2,000 tourists a year. So I just got in touch with them through their website, and uh, they processed all the material, and it really was as easy as going anywhere else in the world. I hmm. arrived uh, one day early in Beijing. They provided me with my visa and took care of every possible... Oh, so it's, it's a tour from Beijing? Yes, it includes the airfare to and from Beijing. And, you know, one of my pleasant surprises was that I was traveling with in a group of 14, and seven of them were Americans. It's easy to go there as an American. How many days trip was it? This trip was four days, and I would say for North Korea, that's plenty. I mean, you can go for up to two weeks, but I think all you really need to do is just sample the country for a few days, and I think go back to your holiday in Beijing or wherever else. Right. When Pico Iyer first visited North Korea a quarter century ago, he wrote that the country was so cut off from the world that it does not know how strange it is and cannot imagine anything except North Korea. Pico's updating us now on his impressions from his latest tour of North Korea. You can read more of Pico's observations from his travels and find out where he's speaking next at his website. That's PicoIyerJourneys.com. That's spelled P-I-C-O-I-Y-E-R. Pico, uh, you venture to these places that, that are really off the mainstream, and, and I don't picture you as a tour group traveler, but maybe in the case of North Korea, this is one place where it makes sense to take a bus tour. Yes, I, I could have gone on an individual tour, but I'm so glad I went in a group. Interestingly enough, when I'd been before, 25 years ago, I had gone alone. I had one guide, and I really spent all my three days there in very intense discussion with my guide. Mm -hmm. But one of the beauties of going in a group was partly the other members of my group were so fascinating, and I was mm -hmm. reminded that sometimes the most interesting tourist sites are one's fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. There was a very kindly retired couple I met from Florida, the kind of person you might meet on a cruise ship. There were a few investment managers. There was an Iranian physician from London. So I really got a lot out of my fellow travelers. And the other advantage of going in a group was that we had a lot of North Koreans with us, ostensibly guides or minders, and they were fascinating too. We had a charming young woman who was telling us all about her dating problems and another man who had worked with Dennis Rodman, the basketball star, and had lots of good stories about him. And it made it a much more convivial experience than if I'd just gone alone. So you got to talk to a North Korean woman about flirting practices in, in their society? <laughs> yes, and in fact, uh, we ran into a very tall, very handsome Australian guide who works a lot there. And she clearly had a crush on him. And we spent much of the time just teasing her about when she was going to marry this Australian. And, and you know, now, now from my experience I, in, in Japan, there's a lot of parental pressure that comes into the, the equation. Did you feel that there was a big part of the equation there also? You just took the words out of my mouth because ah. a large part of what she was saying was talking about was parental pressure that she's 26 and her parents want her to get married soon, but of course want to be sure she's marrying the right guy. And I really felt for all the world, I might be listening to many a 26-year-old woman in Seattle yeah. or London or Tokyo. Now, why would North Korea put up with the headache of having Westerners, you know, poking around in their country? Do they want the, uh, the Western currency? Are they interested in showing off and impressing people? Or did you think about that much? I did. And again, you just answered the question perfectly. I think the first reason is a hard currency. And the second is that they really want to make a good impression on the world and show how developed they are with the equivocal result that much of what you see is a kind of Potemkin surface. They're especially mm -hmm. eager to show off their capital of Pyongyang. 
which is all huge skyscrapers and a 105-story tourist hotel and Olympic Stadium and theaters in the shape of watermills. Mm. And of course, that bears no relation to the desperate mm. lives that most North Koreans are living, but they want to show us this undeniably impressive new city that they've built out of the rubble of the Korean War. You know, this Potemkin uh, facade, can you explain that to our, our listeners just so we can make sure we understand what you're talking about there? Yes, that one walks around Pyongyang and it's the most modern, spotless, skyscraper-filled city around. And yet, I think most of the skyscrapers are empty. Because most uh, communist you, utopias have that kind of showcase city, I think, from the Cold War days. I think so. And I think North Korea in this and in every respect has taken the communist model to the extreme and gone beyond any other counterpart. So you're aware, painfully aware, that a few miles or even a few yards behind these beautiful buildings, people are li living in desperate poverty and starvation. And, you know, all the charms of the guides don't change the fact it's a very brutal and eccentric regime. But I think for me, the beauty of going to out-of-the-way places, and I know you feel the same, is just being reminded of the human factor. Because mm -hmm. I think here in this country, we hear a lot about the North Korean government and its craziness, but we can't put a face or voice to it. And when we put a face and voice to it, it's just that of the leader, which is exactly what the leader wants. So even to spend a few days wandering there talking to North Korean mm -hmm. guides reminds you of the regular human being struggling with dating woes and supporting their loved ones and looking after their aging parents, just as we are. And I think it's always useful to be reminded of the human aspect of any such country. It's always a pleasure to have Pico Iyer as our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Pico's the author of fascinating articles, essays, and books on his observations from traveling all over this planet. His titles include The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama, Video Night in Kathmandu, Falling Off the Map, and The Man Within My Head. He's with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what he found on his most recent visit to North Korea. Uh, Pico, just very quickly, just ballpark, how much money would you think it would cost for a four-day all-included package from Beijing with round-trip airfare and four days uh, guided tour around North Korea? I just by circumstance took what they call an executive exclusive tour, which was $2,000, but I mm -hmm. think they offer the same tour for 800 Wow, that's uh, a great so experience for $800. I mean, talk about interesting. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that impressed me was the retired couple in their late 70s from Florida. Like many retired people, they decided they wanted to see the world, but they thought, well, let's go to places that are the most different from our own country. So they were visiting North Korea for four days, and right after that they were going to Mongolia, and then they were going to enjoy China itself. And I thought, what a spirited and imaginative way to use mm -hmm. your retirement years. And oh, yeah. Not just see Beijing, but throw in Pyongyang while you're there. Now, people would be wondering about safety. There's two dimensions of safety, like street crime just in a poor country and being arrested and, and held hostage for some political reasons. What were your thoughts on that? Uh, there's no possibility of street crime in North Korea, not least because as a foreigner, you're not actually allowed to walk around the streets alone. Mm -hmm. So there's no random wandering of the kind you have anywhere else in the world. And apart from that, I think there's no crime because it's a very intimidated populace. And in terms of getting arrested, I think the one thing the government is very sensitive about is proselytizing. And of course, this mm -hmm. happened last year. They accused an American visitor of handing out Bibles and he was detained. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, of course, your guides are always with you. Our tour leader, the British man from Beijing, was with us. And I think it would be very, very difficult to get in trouble. We were reminded of certain peculiarities. For example, as a foreigner, even as a foreigner, 
you're not allowed to fold a newspaper that contains a photo mm. of the flower named after Kim Il-sung or Kim <laughs> Jong-il. And of course, the North Koreans understand that if you did do that, they're not going to rake you over the coals, but they would be deeply affronted and might question you about that. In that case, you're but glad you have a minder looking out for you because you could get yourself you are, into some trouble. Exactly. And so the first thing that they do when we, the group gathers in Beijing is they spend an hour going over the ground rules. Mm -hmm. uh, and they remind you that this is a strict country that holds its leaders in high regard. Mm -hmm. And when you're there, you have to respect their rules. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Pico Iyer. We know Pico from a lot of his writing to fascinating corners of the world. He's reporting on his recent trip to North Korea. Pico, to me, you're such a free spirit, and, and I could just see you as like a, a frisky little puppy that couldn't get out and run around. Uh, did you have any opportunity to just see the, the regular commerce that wasn't staged to impress the Westerner in some fancy hotel? To be honest, no, but I don't think I missed it because even seeing the stage surfaces, even mm -hmm. looking out of my hotel window at five in the morning, even wandering around my hotel and finding um, slot machines of all <laughs> things in the basement next to a ping pong table and billiards table, even walking down the street with my group and the Korean minders, seeing what's happening in a North Korean street and seeing yeah. people at a shooting range or seeing yeah. groups of kids, all of that was infinitely interesting. The first time I went to North Korea, the thing that really surprised me is that there were a lot of foreigners there in the form of aid workers and, mm -hmm. in this case, on the most recent trip, professional wrestlers who'd come from the U.S. and Japan to engage in a competition. So it's not as if one, one sticks out entirely. There were only two hotels where they put up mm -hmm. foreigners, and there's quite a, a rich life going on within those hotels. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Marilyn is calling from Seattle. Hi, Pico. I wanted to ask about how an ethical traveler would um, reconcile the idea of having an adventure with the atrocities that are happening in that country, and specifically about how um, my travel dollars should be funding this regime that's engaging in atrocious human rights abuses. Thank you. I was just going to talk about that, and you're absolutely right. It's the first question that comes to any visitor's mind. And my first question whenever I go somewhere is what would the local people want? Would they rather that I come or would they rather that I didn't? And whether it's Tibet or Cuba or Burma or any closed country, my sense is that those people are in the grip of that very terrible regime that you described. And the one window of opportunity that they have in their lives is foreigners coming in. So you're right that I, I'm sad that the money goes to this brutalizing government. But on the other hand, I think it's better for the North Koreans and better for us to try to make human contact in however small a way. And, you know, I found myself talking to North Koreans I met about what their favorite American movie was or telling them a little bit about what the United States is. And I think rather than committing them to a kind of solitary confinement in which the only information they get is from the government and they have no contact with the rest of the world, I think it's better just to try to open these little chinks in the wall, as it were. Mm -hmm. Do you find that travelers uh, educate themselves about these things, like seeing testimonies from some of the people who have escaped from this condition? Yes, and I think all the people in our group were very well uh, prepared for it. Most of them had read all the horrifying books about the regime and the sufferings there, and I think that's one of the reasons why many people were going, almost actually going with human rights in mind. Mm. Marilyn, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. Yeah. We're talking with Pico Iyer about visiting North Korea. And Pico, just to, to wrap things up, talk just a second about sites. They must have taken you to the, the great sites of the capital city. What, what is a postcard you'd take home from your visit? 
all the sites they showed me were exactly the same as the sites they had shown me in 1990. So I would say that on an official level, it couldn't be more boring, and it looks exactly like all the photographs we've seen. But everything between the sites, between the words, mm-hmm. the silences, the evening we spent on a river cruise when one of our guys was leading us in a rendition of My Way, the person who told me that he hated the sound of music because it was his official English language text uh, in <laughs> university. I think those were the things that I really took away. And I think my deeper feeling was that we rightly mock and criticize North Korea for knowing nothing about the rest of the world. And it would be a shame if we knew nothing about them other Uh than the leader. Do the people in North Korea understand how cut off they are and how what an anomaly they are? Or are they so isolated that they just don't understand what's beyond their borders? I think they still know much, much less than we would imagine. But I'm told that DVDs and images from, for example, South Korea and Beijing are beginning to get in there. And each one that does is a little detonation, of course, because as soon as they see the the daily life of somebody in South Korea, they realize what they're missing. And I think that's a problem that the government is going to have to face. Even the smallest amount of information is going to topple that self-enclosed universe that they've created. And I so agree with your philosophy that you're making little chinks in the armor there and, and slowly that it'll contribute to breaking down these barriers. Did you find the people of North Korea buy into the propaganda of their government and and are threatened by Westerners? Or is there a healthy curiosity about Westerners and, and they see us as a little window on the West? It's impossible to tell what they really believe, but I'm told that many North Koreans took their own lives when Kim Il-sung died, and many of them really do believe this as members of a religion might believe that But they did tell me, the North Koreans I talked to, that there is more openness and more curiosity. And at one point, we were walking around the streets and people were coming up to us with curiosity and and smiling and trying to gesture. And one of our guides said, well, three years ago, this wouldn't have happened. Mm. Um, So the North Koreans are feeling slightly emboldened to begin to make, at least say hello to the rest of the world. Though it's true to this day that a North Korean can be executed even for reading a foreign newspaper. So they have a long, long way to go. But I think the government realizes it can't sustain itself by remaining so isolated and so in small ways maybe allowing for a little more freedom than before. And just from a travel point of view, to better understand our world, to physically go there and realize that here are people who really could be so distraught that they would take their own life if their political leader died. It's just part of the reality of this planet. And as you said, understanding the humanity behind the politics and and the desperation there. Yes, and I I think the reason I first went to North Korea is my sense that when I sit in California, I have certain ideas about what daily life or reality or human existence mean. And as soon as I go to North Korea, I see none of those apply, that my Mm -hmm. vision of the world is rather local and provincial. And here's a place filled with 22 million humans for whom daily life and reality has a totally different meaning. And it's a good humbling reminder that... uh, My view isn't universal, and it's also a reminder of some things that are universal, like the parental pressures on (laughs) young women to get married. And uh, And 36-lane bowling alleys. Exactly, yes. And to speak to your earlier question, our guides were very free in talking about their lives and their concerns, but the one thing they wouldn't talk about is the leader, not a single sentence. And at one point I asked, does your current leader have a brother? And suddenly one of my guides looked very uncomfortable and said, we don't think about that. And I turned to another guide a little later and asked her the same question. And she said, uh, we don't know. They are acutely aware, on pain of death probably, of the boundaries that they can't cross. But on other subjects, they were as free as there they were constrained. 
And one thing that struck me going back there this time was, of course, North Korea belongs to another planet. But I remember going to Beijing in 1985, and Beijing in 1985 looks quite similar to Pyongyang today.、Hmm. And of course, Beijing 30 years on makes Manhattan look old-fashioned. So even when you go to North Korea now and you see this place stuck in time, I think you're aware if you travel to other places that it could change very quickly.、Mm. And、um, who knows what the future is going to bring. Pico Iyer, thanks so much for giving us a glimpse at this、uh, mysterious corner of our fascinating world. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan Wilner. We had studio help this week from WGBH Boston and a room with a VU in Santa Barbara. Special thanks to Gretchen Strauch for reading this week's listener travel haiku. You can add your comments or travel reports to our online feedback forum. It's part of the extras you'll find each week in the radio section of RickSteves.com. Support for travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at RosettaStone.com/ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure. Begin your trip at ricksteves.com.